When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I don't think it's any secret that I'm a feminist. That word still carries a lot of baggage somehow. A hundred years after the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote, a lot of people still have a negative perception of feminists, to the point where many people won't call themselves the F-word even if they believe all genders should be equal under law. It still carries a stigma. You only have to turn on your phone to see what people think of us. You know, the modern version of the monstrous woman we talked about with Dr. Nicole Dittmer in the last episode. I'm honestly shocked that no one has accused AOC of turning into a werewolf yet, but we probably shouldn't give them ideas. Not only is the negative perception of feminism based on a bullshit stereotype, but that bullshit stereotype is very nearly 200 years old. Ugh, feminists. They threaten the family. They threaten the patriarchy. They threaten the very definition of acceptable femininity, and as such, they must be stopped. You see, back when the suffrage movement started in the 19th century, they were saying the same thing. Suffragists were manly women or effeminate men. They were the wrong kind of woman. They weren't performing femininity correctly. Some of them had short hair. Some of them wore pants, for God's sake, and won't somebody think of the children? <sighs> It wasn't easy to be a suffragist, but heaven help you if you happen to be queer as well. Now as we study the women's suffrage movement, we focus on the big names. Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Emmeline Pankhurst, and many of the queer voices are overlooked. Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, Alice Morgan Wright, Anna Howard Shaw, Alice Dunbar Nelson. They were important too, but as you'll hear in a moment, they faced opposition and censure in their own time, and from other suffragists because of who they were. But let's get one thing straight. No matter what some people say, there is no right kind of person in the fight for equality. Feminism, real feminism, belongs to all of us, regardless of race, class, or gender identity. If your brand of feminism excludes anybody, then honey, you are doing it wrong. That's what I want you to take from this this week. Following on from the last episode's great talk with Dr. Nicole Dittmer, we are following that thread just a little bit further to see what all those Victorian men were so afraid of. My guest today is Dr. Wendy Rouse, author of the new book, Public Faces, Secret Lives, A Queer History of the Women's Suffrage Movement. This book covers the lives of so many incredible early suffragists, people we frequently hear just didn't exist in the past. Well, they did exist. They kicked some ass, literally, in many cases, and we have the pictures to prove it. We'll post those on our Instagram, at Dirty Sexy History. We are talking about those suffragists today, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, here's my talk with Wendy Rouse. My guest today is Dr. Wendy Rouse, author of the new book, Public Faces, Secret Lives, A Queer History of the Women's Suffrage Movement. Wendy, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we are so glad to have you. This book is absolutely phenomenal, and I have so many questions, I hardly know where to start. So let's start with a big one, and, and feel free to answer this as briefly as you want. It's a tall order. What was it like to be a queer woman in 19th century America? Well, it was uh, it was complex, let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First of all, there is no like sense of like queer community or queer identity like we know it today. I mean, there's always been queer people, like right people that kind of defy the gender and sexual norms of their era. Um, but there wasn't like a, a movement for uh, queer rights in the time period that I was studying, which is kind of the suffrage era, the late 1800s and the early 20th century. So you write about so many incredible people, and one who really stood out to me that you mentioned right away is Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War surgeon and early champion of dress reform. She was almost written out of suffragist history because she didn't represent the kind of femininity that Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton found acceptable. What can you tell us about her? Did other queer or gender nonconforming suffragists experience similar censure? Yeah, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker is just such a fascinating individual. Um, she was an advocate for women's rights and not only fought for the right to vote, but fought for dress reform, which was kind of this idea that women should be able to dress as they please, specifically in a way that is healthy, you know, that's not confining. Um, and so at the time, some early women's rights advocates were talking about women being able to wear bloomers, you know, sort of a, a, a pant like uh, part of their part of their outfit that would allow for more mobility and the ability to engage in a variety of different activities. And Dr. Walker was a big advocate of this. And so were some of the early suffragists, including like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. But what they found over time was that they were criticized uh, for their appearance. They were kind of derided as mannish women who wanted to, you know, wear the pants. And so some of the mainstream suffragists began to drop this issue of dress reform. And Dr. Mary Edwards Walker thought that that was ridiculous, that women's rights should be about a broad range of issues beyond just the vote, right? That they should focus on um, allowing women to exist and live the way that they wanted to live. And if that meant defying gender norms and wearing the clothing, that they pleased, then she was all for it. So she was actually arrested several times for wearing men's clothing. Uh, at first, she wore the dress reform outfit, which were kind of bloomers underneath a dress. Um, and over time, she just began to wear more and more what was considered at the time men's clothing, you know, a pant, pants and, and a suit, a coat. Um, and so this was considered against the law because many cities had anti-cross-dressing laws. So she was not allowed to uh, walk around in public like that. So in some cities, they would arrest her. And every time she was arrested, they would say that she was being arrested for wearing men's clothing. And she would say, but I'm not wearing men's clothing. I'm wearing my own clothing. Mm -hmm. And this was really profound, right? Because she's challenging that idea that women should dress a certain way. So it's really kind of this gender non-conforming approach that resonates with many people today, you know, trans folks, um, um, more butch masculine women who uh, gender identity is, is more masculine, um, non-binary folks, like this idea that you can dress how you like, how you can present yourself in a way uh, that is 
um, any way that you please. And so this was really what Dr. Mary Edwards Walker was was fighting for, but it put her at the extreme of the suffrage movement. She was really considered out there by many mainstream suffragists. And they they kind of wanted to distance themselves from her because they found that the media really focused on this one issue and not on the issues that they wanted to, which were the vote. Right. They just wanted to focus on the the one thing and, and they found it too kind of distracting. Right. At this point, um, they were really wanting to try to focus in on on the key political goal. And um, it, it distracted from the main point in their opinion. And uh, Walker insisted that the main point was to expand the rights of women. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In a variety of ways, not just the vote. Yeah. And and her suits were great. I mean, you know, more to the point, you know, the, the pictures in, in the book are so fantastic. She looks very sharp. Yes. Yes. She's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, she is. So how widespread was the movement for dress reform? Were, were a lot of women wanting to wear pants? Yeah, in the mid 1850s, especially there, there was a, a very strong um, dress reform movement that um, kind of, as I said, that they kind of moved away from more and more uh, by the late 19th century to focus on other issues. But uh, yeah, it was a big movement in the 19th century. Right. And so many of the women who were seen as almost radical outliers, even to the suffragist movement, were just super ahead of their time, like Victoria Woodhull, the first woman to run for president. What were some of Victoria's ideas? Yeah, Victoria was kind of um, embracing this idea of like free love, this idea that uh, marriage especially could be confining for women. It could um, reduce their status in society, um, really could be oppressive in many ways. And so she was challenging this idea that women necessarily or men and women necessarily needed the state to uh, justify their relationships or to, to sanctify their relationships so she was really standing outside the norm in a sense and challenging this institution of of marriage the way that it had been defined by the state and insisting that women should have the rights to enter into relationships and leave relationships at their own kind of pleasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And now when you hear the term free love, you know, most people associate it with like the 1960s, not the 1860s, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the 19th century concept of free love? Yeah, well, it varied from individual to individuals. And, and so I'm sure there are individuals at the time who were embracing this more idea of um, a free love that's more akin to the 1960s, which is having multiple sexual partners and engaging in a variety of different relationships at once. Um, but in the, in for most individuals who were claiming this idea of free love in the late uh, 19th century and the early 20th century, they were talking about the freedom to enter into and out of relationships without necessarily needing the permission of the state, right? So not necessarily having to be married in order to have a sexual relationship with an individual um, and to leave that relationship with that individual. So um, essentially, most of them were monogamous, but not all. Some of them were involved in multiple relationships at once. Um, But most of them were talking about their freedom to be able to, to be in a variety of relationships of their own choosing without having to be married. Mm-hmm. And not have the kind of marriage that people expect. Um, you talk a little bit about the, this idea of Boston marriages, which is a term I don't think everybody's familiar with. So what exactly is a Boston marriage? Sure. So in the mid to late 19th century, many upper class, middle class women uh, would sometimes move in together rather than commit to a heterosexual marriage. Um, and part of this was because 
many of these women were, were more educated women. They'd gone to college. Uh, they had pursued professional careers and they knew that if they married, they would not be allowed to continue to necessarily pursue that, that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so essentially moving in with another woman afforded them some economic freedom and independence, right? Because they, they did not have to depend upon a father or a husband to take care of them. They could combine economic resources and live together in any way that they kind of pleased. This also opens up the opportunity for women who were queer, women who uh, were lesbian or bisexual or pansexual, right, to live with another woman, to embrace um, a romantic relationship with another woman and not have to necessarily um, live a, an alt a different lifestyle, right? They didn't have to get married and pretend they could just move in with another woman. So Boston marriages could be economic partnerships, they could be friendships, modern roommate situations, or they could be romantic lesbian relationships as we know them today. That's amazing. Uh, how many uh, lesbian relationships do you think there were? I mean, of course, there isn't a way to, to quantify it, but how common were they? Um, I would say it wasn't very common, but it it happened, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it was very limited specifically to upper middle class women, tended to be those that were educated. And so college educated women were very rare at this time period. Um, so we're talking a very, very few women that were in, involved in Boston marriages, but surprisingly much more common than we would think. Maybe looking back and assuming that there were no relationships like this, right, that there actually were. And speaking of which, I'm always on the lookout for a good love story, and I particularly enjoyed reading about Anna Howard Shaw. I mean, first of all, she's gorgeous, right? And it would take uh, serious guts to have hair that short in the Victorian period as a woman. So she had a 30-year relationship with Susan B. Anthony's niece, Lucy. But when she died, Lucy was listed only as her secretary in her obituary. Is secretary like saying they were roommates? <laughs> yeah, it could be. Um, I, although I think that actually was her position at the time. Oftentimes they're referred to in the literature as like companion, um, close friend, partner even is mentioned. But yeah, there were a lot of like coded terms for these women who were these romantic partners uh, for these other women. And that's part of what kind of contributes to the erasure over time where we don't really get a sense of this history very well because uh, it's hard to tell like who, who was a friend and who was a romantic partner because they use this kind of coded language. Absolutely. It must be very challenging as a historian. What, what kind of thing were you looking for? Well, I think one of the challenges was kind of determining were these romantic relationships or were they platonic friendships? And I kind of relied on beyond a reasonable doubt kind of evidence, right? So I wasn't just looking for, oh, two women live together, therefore I conclude that they're in a romantic relationship. Um, no, I, I required a lot more evidence. So typically what I would do is look first to see who did they live with? And then if I found two women living together, then I'd wanna explore that relationship. Like, what do I know about them? How were they connected? Why did they move in together? Like any information I could get. And usually I would try to locate um, more information about what their relationship was like, including their, their diaries, their letters to each other. Um, maybe they wrote poems to each other. Maybe they gave each other gifts. Uh, so I'm looking at the totality of that evidence, right? And then a lot of my evidence came up at the moment of their deaths too, and looking at how they took care of each other after death and what their relationship was like at that point. Um, and so kind of looking at the totality of their relationships, I was able to 
make some pretty solid uh, confirmations about who were in romantic relationships versus more friendship type situations. Oh, for sure. And you have so many great people in this book and, and so many amazing stories. Were there any that particularly resonated with you? Yes. I particularly liked the story of Alice Morgan Wright. Um, I spent a lot of time researching Alice's papers and I really feel like I came to understand her as an individual and to try to reconstruct her life and her queer life specifically was probably the most complex but the most fascinating part of this research. So Alice Morgan Wright was um, a young suffragist. She was educated in New England and went to Paris to study sculpture. And while she was traveling across the Atlantic uh, to begin her study in art in Paris, she met Emmeline Pankhurst, who was the leader of the British militant suffrage movement. And Pankhurst was very well known internationally as a, a suffragette and Wright was just absolutely awestruck, like hero worshiping when she got the chance to meet Pankhurst. And they actually became friends because Pankhurst was uh, very charming, very charismatic, and liked to establish really good relationships with the, the people that she worked with. And so here was this young suffragist, and she was really interested in kind of mentoring her uh, to be a suffragist active in the movement in the future. So when Wright arrives in Paris and Pankhurst goes on to London, um, they maintain communications. They continue to write to each other. And Pankhurst shares news of what's happening in the movement in London. And Wright shares news about her work in the art world. And essentially, it got to the point where Wright could no longer resist not being active in what was happening over in London. And what was happening was the movement was really heating up. British suffragists were angry that parliament wasn't taking any action on the vote. And they began this kind of mass uh, campaign to try to raise awareness about women's right to vote, including smashing windows with rocks. And uh, at this point, uh, Wright could not resist. So she goes over to London and she's arrested holding a rock prepared to smash windows uh, <laughs> along with the British suffragettes. So when news reaches her parents back in New England that she's been arrested for, for engaging in militant activity, um, they are horrified. They are absolutely horrified. I mean, this, this militant uh, action, this mass window breaking was generally looked down upon by American suffragists. And so to know that their daughter had been arrested in this militant action really horrified them. Um, and it was all over the news. It was, it was, front page news across the nation that an American girl arrested in London. So they head over to England to try to get her released from prison. And meanwhile, she's in prison having the time of her life, along with hundreds of other suffragists who had been arrested. And she is just writing the account of what happened. And she even goes on hunger strike with the other suffragists. And is just happy because she's there with Pankhurst and with all these other suffragists. And she feels like she's a part of something for once in her life. She's actively doing something for what she believes in. And she writes a love poem. She writes a couple of love poems to Pankhurst at the time, a few of which are in, in the book. Um, and just talks about, you know, how much she adores Pankhurst. And it's just, it's clear it's romantic love from her perspective. And obviously Pankhurst wasn't in the same mindset back. 
And I don't think she ever gave those poems to Pankhurst, but it's just this fascinating example of how these kind of queer relationships, these queer crushes um, united the suffragists even across the Atlantic. And they continued to have a very strong friendship for years afterwards. And Wright ends up going back to the United States, becomes active in the suffrage movement here and ends up living the rest of her life with another suffragist here in the United States. Wow, what an incredible story. So how did the British and American movements influence each other? Of course, they were kind of happening at the same time. Yeah, the British movement really did influence uh, the the movement in the United States. They were very active um, on a variety of levels. There was petitioning of parliament and they had for years, they had petitioned parliament to try to get the passage of a suffrage, uh, a suffrage amendment. And essentially uh, what happened is as they became more and more militant at first with parades and marches and petitions to parliament and then later with like destruction of property like breaking windows and um setting mailboxes on fire and things like that like uh destroying buildings setting buildings on fire many of the american suffragists began to distance themselves from that more violent element because they saw that as counterproductive to their movement and but ironically it was the techniques of the militant suffragists that really did change and the American approach to suffrage. Um, so we think about today, we think about the big suffrage parades, right, in D.C. and in New York City. And we think about the silent sentinels who were standing in front of the White House and picketing the president of the United States. And we think about the hunger strikes and them going to prison. All of that was influenced by the British women first. That's really what inspired many of the U.S. suffragists to engage in more direct action. That's fascinating. Yeah. So uh, we've talked a little bit on the show in, in previous episodes about how the the suffrage movement um, just scared the hell out of the, like kind of like average people, especially men, right? Because uh, around this time of the suffrage movement, more women were being admitted to like mental institutions for for having ideas of, you know, well, we want our freedom. <laughs> you know, we have these ideas about, you know, wanting women's liberation. So obviously they must be crazy, right? So we've talked about that a little bit and about how uh, kind of society at large reacted to them, right? Also, you mentioned this a little bit in your introduction. You write that anti-suffragists blamed the suffrage movement for disrupting the so-called natural order, right? That being the Victorian ideal of the family separated into distinct gendered spheres. Um, But as we mentioned last week as well with uh, Dr. Nicole Dittmer, the idea of the domestic angel was actually contemporary to this period. It isn't as natural as people would like us to believe. So why were the anti-suffragists so invested in enforcing these strict gender roles and keeping women isolated? Like, what were they afraid of is what I'm trying to get at. I think they're afraid of women having political power. Mm -hmm. I I mean, that's kind of the constant theme throughout most history, right? Is that uh, we're talking about the patriarchy. We're talking about men being afraid of women having power, of losing their own power. We'll say that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that this idea that women might vote is threatening to people who want to maintain the status quo, who want to maintain their power. Um, And so essentially what they do is they project this fear onto the suffragists that if women gain the right to vote, what will happen to men? What will happen to the family? And so the idea is that it will destroy those. It will destroy the relationship, the heterosexual relationship, and it will destroy the family. So you see them creating postcards and they're showing these women that are running off to take part in the suffrage movement and are neglecting their children at home. 
who are crying, who need who need their help. And then the men are forced to uh, take on these domestic tasks that are really beneath them, according to the to the thinking of the time that this is women's work that they're having to take on. And so they kind of characterize these women that want the vote as abnormal women, as mannish masculine women who want masculine power and therefore are destructive and have the potential to upend all of the existing social norms and destroy families. And men too, who engaged in any kind of suffrage work or supported the right of women to vote were considered abnormal. They were considered more feminine men and they had all kinds of names, right? Because men who step outside the norm are often um, either physically forced back into place through violence or through name calling or things like that. So they would call men sissies or mollycoddles um, for supporting women's right to vote. So it was kind of like a strict policing of gender and sexual norms in response to their fears of losing power. Right. Gosh. Well, I mean, from my perspective, if if that kind of institution, that kind of classic heterosexual marriage, if it can be destroyed that easily, it deserves to be destroyed. But that's just me editorializing, right? So, uh, of course, you mentioned that uh, the, this criticism of, of suffragists as mannish women or feminine men, right? It, it sounds just like something that you'd see on Twitter. You know, I mean, you can hear the things that they call these people, right? You know, like these are beta males, like whatever the fuck that means, right? Like like the worst thing you can say about somebody is that they're not performing their gender to your specific tastes. But still, as, as ridiculous as it sounds, it had a lot of power, right? So much so that many suffragist leaders went to great lengths to appear more traditionally feminine in an effort to silence their harshest critics, even though these are the people that they're never going to please. You know, as long as they're out and they're speaking, they're never going to please these people. So why did they try? Yeah, I think it's interesting because you have suffragists adopting all sorts of strategies. Mm -hmm. So one thing I don't want to do is paint this as like a simple black and white, uh, extreme picture right a simple dichotomy of you have you have these suffragists and then you have these other suffragists you have conforming and non-conforming because the truth is is that you had suffragists employing all sorts of strategies to try to to deal with their unique situation and to try to get their political goals met so for instance anna howard shaw as a young woman was very gender non-conforming in appearance i mean she had her hair cut short she went by the name Annie boy. Um, it was clear that she was standing outside the norm in every way. And then she goes on to live a life that's just gender defying in every way, right? She pursues a professional career. She's a, a minister. She ends up um, being active in the women's rights movement, being the head of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. And she is just living this life that's just outside the norm in every way. But when she gets attacked for her appearance, she feels like that's just one more attack that she's facing that she doesn't need to deal with. And so she decides to mitigate that by changing her dress style to appear more conservative, more traditional, um, more feminine, at least outwardly feminine, and to try to conform at least so that that portion of her message doesn't get obscured. Um, and so rather than having them focus on how she looks, she wants them to focus on what she's saying. And so that's why she makes this choice to 
present herself in a gender conforming way and to encourage other suffragists to appear in this like more feminine gender conforming way. But we know that for suffragists like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, that is marginalizing. That is saying you have to fit into this box and you can't be yourself and you can't uh, dress or appear, or present yourself in any way you want. And so for those suffragists, then they reject that strategy and they reject that approach. And they're kind of like, screw it. We're going to do what we're going to do. Right. Um, and we're going to fight for it all. So it's really individual based on the suffragist, but, and who's in power then shifts what the norms are in the suffrage movement itself and what the, what the rules are and how they go about advocating for suffrage. And as you say, of course, not everybody reacted to it in the same way, but still, I mean, I found it really heartbreaking that, you know, the, the very people who should be their allies are sometimes their harshest critics, you know, um, that we're still seeing it today, right. With different people calling themselves feminist while excluding certain women, whether they're black or queer or transgender, they're, they're still doing it. So for such clever women, it's, it's sad to me that the more kind of some of the more, I suppose, mainstream suffragists, they, they couldn't see that excluding people for the sake of respectability only hurt their own movement. So is there anything that we can learn from this today about the, the kind of danger of respectability politics? Yeah, and I, th I think you just said it. I mean, that is the danger of respectability politics is that you marginalize the most marginalized people in your movement um, if you're just concerned about respectability. Um, you you lose the radical edges of the movement. And I think that that's where the real danger is, is because in some ways this this kind of radical feminism is what what is fighting against the gender norms, is fighting to deconstruct this idea, this binary idea of man versus woman. And I think that that was um, the key portions of the suffrage movement, the radical portions of the suffrage movement that were unfortunately um, kind of sanitized through this gender conforming approach mm -hmm. absolutely this respectability politics yeah yeah and it's and it's sad and it, it weakens the movement you know and it it plays into the hands of the oppressor sorry i'm not sure if there's another way to say that <laughs> no you, that's exactly it you're right it it um further marginalizes the people in the movement that most need the support and protection right right and they don't have to kind of inflict that that role onto you if if you're just assuming that that is kind of what they want that's their end game and you just kind of put it on yourself um and that's really sad uh, I mean I, I can understand why why they did it but um at the same time I feel like we need to learn from this yeah for sure and I think that's that is the lesson is that the respectability politics played to the extreme definitely um loses the whole point in some senses of the of the movement uh and so that that is something that uh activists today need to think about as well yeah and and of course the the respectability politics um that was a major factor in the experiences of the black suffragists can you can you talk a little bit more about what it was like for them yeah so for many black suffragists again they're they're dealing with this idea of the need to present themselves in a way that their message is heard and to try to distract from other things that um, detract from their message so for example, I talk in the book about Alice Dunbar Nelson, and she's a great example of a suffragist. She's black suffragist. She's active in the fight for black rights, um, you know, talking about violence against the black community, talking about housing issues and access uh, to, to resources for the black community, uh, fighting against segregation and racialized violence. So she's active in so many ways, and she's a member of, um, 
the National American Women's Suffrage Association. She's actually traveling around alongside these white suffragists and fighting for women's right to vote. And so for her, the issue is obviously like this issue of intersectionality, right? The ways in which women are oppressed and especially black women are oppressed in society. And so she's fighting for a wide variety of rights, but she finds that the focus on her personal life or the focus on her status um, can also lead to attacks against her. Because not only is she standing outside the norm as a black woman, but as a woman advocating for the for women's right to vote, you know, so she, what she does is she tries to present herself as respectable as possible. So yes, gender conforming. She emphasizes her status as a middle-class woman, as a married woman. So she had been married to Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who was a famous um, writer. And throughout her career, she introduced herself as Mrs. Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Even after she divorced him, he was actually abusive to her and she ended up divorcing him. But she continued to go by Mrs. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, even when she at, at later um, when he passed away, um, because that status as a as a middle class uh, married woman was powerful in a society that denigrated single women, um, that denigrated women, that divorced women. Right. So she emphasized her status in public appearances um, and she emphasized her heterosexuality by saying that she was Mrs. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, even though at the time she was having relationships with women. She had romantic relationships with women and long-term partnerships with, with men at various points in her life and with women at various points in her life. But she doesn't make that public because it would detract uh, from her message. And that's what she's concerned about because there's so much marginalization of uh, queer women and especially of Black queer women at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, criticism isn't the only threat that they're facing. It's not the worst thing that can happen. Um, and as much danger as women faced, Black and queer suffragists probably had it worse. So what was the experience like for them? What kind of opposition did they face? Well, the suffragists themselves are concerned about their reputation and their status, um, in part because there's this image of women who wanted the vote as um, abnormal, as uh, mannish women, as in some ways, um, you know, psychologically degenerate women. And so the idea was that they wanted to show that they are they are normal women, they are educated women, they are professional women. And again, this is marginalizing anyone who doesn't fit those categories, including working class women and, and whatnot. So this is part of the, the problem with the respectability side of the politics. But it's an attempt to counter this uh, this harsh uh, criticism of them that they are not uh, normal women. Mm -hmm. Right. And of course, sometimes they were arrested. Yeah, you could be arrested. This was less common for women, though, than it was for men at the time who were gender nonconforming or sexually uh, nonconforming in some way, non-heterosexual. Um, but women were more likely to be be shunned, um, to be denied access to rights, to institutions, to education. And in ex more extreme cases, especially for working class women, they could be institutionalized in in mental institutions and whatnot. Yeah. And they were just so horrific at the time. We've talked about it quite a lot on the show, but it's, I mean, it's not a small threat. It's terrible. 
Um, so you've also written about self-defense in your book, Her Own Hero, The Origins of the Women's Self-Defense Movement. I knew that British suffragettes were training in jujitsu. Uh, was that something that American women were doing as well? What kind of self-defense are we talking about? Yeah, American women were also interested in jujitsu and boxing, uh, were very popular in the pre-1920s era in the United States. There, It kind of had a a heyday around 1904 specifically and into the about 1918-1919 um, before the the world war essentially what happened was there was a huge amount of interest in Jap Japanese culture Japanese history and Theodore Roosevelt himself the president of the United States began studying jujitsu and this led to kind of a popularity of jujitsu across the, the country and this concern that American men wouldn't necessarily be able to fight back against a, a rising political and military power like Japan led to increasing attempts to prepare the American military, American men in college and whatnot to be able to wrestle, box, and do jujitsu. Many women then embrace this as a possibility of empowering themselves physically as well as politically. And it becomes connected to the women's suffrage movement when British suffragists actually start training underground secretly in jujitsu um, because they're facing police brutality. They're out there fighting for the vote. Um, they're getting beat by the police. Uh, they're getting arrested. They're getting sexually assaulted by the police. And so they decide to fight back. They decide to actually create a bodyguard of women to protect their leaders. And they start training in jujitsu very visibly at first to try to kind of present themselves as a threat. Um, and then over time, they start to make it more secretive when the police actually come after them for this. And so it's just fascinating. So American women did it as well. American suffragists, it wasn't quite as big of a movement as it was in among the British suffragettes. In, in the United States, they did it more secretly. And so we have just a few examples of, of American suffragists doing it. But American women were studying boxing and jujitsu at the time. And they were as well. That's so amazing. So in chapter three, you also talk about how the suffragists created like chosen families and communities and, and various networks to, to kind of sustain them through their work. Um, and I think that's so important. So how did they do that? And is that something that we can do today? Yeah, I mean, queer folks today do create chosen families. Chosen families are kind of essential to the survival of queer people, especially if you've been pushed out of your own biological family, if you've been uh, marginalized in your community or in your society. And so essentially they're they're so crucial to the survival of queer people. And what I found is that many suffragists who themselves had been marginalized in their communities or pushed out of their families for being suffragists end up creating their own families. They end up creating, we talk about Boston marriages already, but they also create their own extended family units, uh, multiple suffragists living together in like these cohesive groups. And then you also have suffragists who form you know, a relationship with a romantic partner and maybe adopt children or take in other suffragists who need help and kind of as their adopted family, as their adopted children. And there's just, there's a ton of examples of it in the book. And I think it just shows you the importance of community, but especially of chosen families 
especially among those mo most marginalized uh, of women at the time who were suffragists. I think that's really wonderful. That's great. And of course, you know, the, the families that you create are, are often a lot more meaningful than the ones that you're born into, you know, for anyone, I think. Yeah. Cool. And I talk about like Albert Eugene DeForest. So Albert Eugene DeForest was a uh, suffragist who was really just struggling to find acceptance in society and in his own family. So he was assigned female at birth, but told his family as a young man that he he was a man and wanted to go to a men's college. He was a boy when he was a boy, he told them. Um, and they just really didn't accept this. So he ends up um, finding a mentor, finding an adopted mother in a suffragist named Dr. Alita Avery, who didn't have the same life experience as him, didn't really understand uh, his full situation, but took him in as her adopted son. And basically they end up spending a great deal of time together, active in the suffrage movement, active in a variety of social causes. And he ended up relying on her and on her suffrage friends, their suffrage friends, um, as time goes on. And even when he's arrested um, for dressing in the clothing opposite of his sex assigned at birth, um, he relies on this suffrage chosen family who ends up providing legal support and defending him um, in, in court. One of the suffragists was an attorney who defended him in court. Um, so the, for someone who at the time, like today, we might identify Albert as as a trans man, um, but that that terminology, that concept, that identity didn't necessarily exist at the time. But he finds in the suffragists of, the, of his era, he finds a chosen community, a chosen family that um, provides support for him to live his life. I think that's wonderful. And I think it's important, uh, you know, even now for people to look out for each other, you know, um, activism at, at any level, I think it's not easy. You know, you're always going to kind of have your critics and, and you do need to find your, your like-minded allies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you do also talk a little bit about uh, death rituals and I was a little curious about that. That was um, not something I was expecting. So can you tell us a little bit about how they honored their death? Yeah, you and me both. I wasn't expecting it either. What happened was I kept ending up finding little fragments of clues about these suffragists' romantic relationships at the moment of their death. Um, because sometimes it was just most strikingly obvious that they were in a romantic relationship with another suffragist um, when they willed their property, when they wrote out their... Um, their final wishes and their final testament, right? And sometimes in how they passed on or took care of people after their death. So I ended up gathering so much evidence of this, I decided to make a separate chapter because some of these stories were just absolutely moving, um, including I tell a story in, in the book about um, two suffragists who were Dr. Mary Sperry and Gail Laughlin who were together for 14 years. They lived in a Boston marriage, but their relationship ended in tragedy when Dr. Mary Sperry died in the influenza epidemic. Mm -hmm. And they end up um, providing for each other. Dr. Sperry wrote in her will that she wanted Laughlin to have her property and for Laughlin to care for her remains. But this becomes hugely contentious. It actually ends up in this very heated legal battle um, 
where Sperry's family contests the will and insists that uh, her that their daughter was basically uh, influenced by this other suffragist, that Laughlin was a, a mannish woman, which was kind of code for implying that she was sexually deviant, right? Um, and that therefore uh, there was something abnormal in their relationship. Uh, the mother actually accuses Laughlin of poisoning her daughter's mind against the family. She implies that Laughlin has this domineering and masculine disposition. And she even tells the court that they were constant companions and that they shared the same bed. So she's implying that the whole will should be thrown out because they were lesbians, basically, or at least that Laughlin was a lesbian who had seduced her daughter. The court ends up ignoring the whole thing. Um, and the court ends up uh, going along with uh, Sperry's will and fulfilling the wishes of Dr. Sperry. And the Sperry family was furious. So they um, do not have access to their daughter's remains. So they inscribe in memoriam on the family tombstone to show that that's where their daughter should have been. That was her rightful place. But her remains were not there because Laughlin carried her remains, her partner's remains with her for the rest of her life. And uh, she lived for 30 plus more years. And at the moment of her death, she ends up requesting in her will that her ashes be laid to rest next to Sperry's ashes side by side. And she requests a tombstone, a single tombstone with both of their names, which was common for heterosexual couples at the time, but not something you typically see with two platonic friends, right? So mm -hmm. it shows just how important their relationship was. They literally etch into stone their love for each other. That's just beautiful. I love that. Well, there, there are so many amazing stories in here. I mean, the book is great. I'd recommend it to anybody. So what is the legacy of all of these of the queer suffragists? I think the legacy is they were fighting, obviously, for women's rights. They were fighting for much more than the vote. They envisioned, for many of the queer suffragists especially, they envision a day where they could live and love freely. They could express themselves, their gender identity, their sexuality, uh, they they imagined that the vote was just the first step to a variety of freedoms. Um, so I think that's part of the legacy is remembering that that they just they saw political power as the first step, that they in insisted that they would have to carry on the fight, that we would have to carry on the fight um, and continue those battles. Uh, they definitely didn't see the vote as the end all. They saw it as the beginning. So I think that's one lesson. I think the other lesson that's super important from this book is that um, there has been a concerted effort to conceal queer history, and it's so important to reveal that history um, because suffragists themselves who are concerned about their reputation, they're concerned about their legacy, right? There's an attempt on their part in some ways to kind of straightwash history to make themselves look more respectable. And then their descendants and biographers, especially in, in homophobic, uh, transphobic time periods, trying to cover up this queer history. So I think it's important for us to remember that any attempt to conceal our history or to destroy uh, history to don't say gay, you know, don't say trans, like those efforts only contribute to an erasure of people who story deserves to be told who are here, who have always been here. Absolutely. Well said. Wendy, thank you so much. You've been absolutely incredible. Where can we find more about you and your work? My book is available at NYU Press, so you can check that out online. You can also order it on anywhere you buy your books from independent bookstore. And you can read more about my research at wendylrouse.com if you want to hear more about my other books.
Absolutely fantastic. And we definitely will. Thank you again so much. You've been absolutely amazing. Sure. Thank you. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Wendy Rouse for joining us today. Her new book is Public Faces, Secret Lives, and you can find her at wendylrouse.com. I'd also like to thank our marvelous patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Rose Little, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. You can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History. We'll post photos from today's show on our Instagram, and we have also joined Mastodon at Dirty Sexy History at Toot.Wales. So stop by and say hey. You can also find us on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. See you next time.